Let's turn in the Word of God to Psalm 77. I've been parked at this psalm studying for some time off and on. I would come back to it, get away from it, and come back to it. I feel like the Lord is burdening me to share some thoughts about Psalm 77. And the title of the message is From Worry to Wonder. From Worry to Wonder. And let's read the first few verses here. And we're going to spend the majority of our time at this chapter. Usually we do a little bit of turning here and there. And I've got a few verses aside from this to share. But let's read. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice. And he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. Thou holdest mine, excuse me, thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Are y'all catching my emphasis? I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. I'm sure you noticed the emphasis that I placed in the reading of the Word of God this morning. There's a lot of I and me and mine in there, isn't it? (laughs) And verses 1 through 9 are the first half of Psalm 77. Now, I'm a sports-minded person, particularly football-minded. That's my favorite sport. Nothing against the other sports, but that was just my favorite. And so you might say that verses 1 through 9 is the first half, the first half of the game. And verses 10 through 20 are the second half. So we're going to talk about what's going on in the first half of Psalm 77, and we're going to talk some about what's going on in the second half. And Let me just say this. The second half is a lot better than the first half. Because it has hardly any focus at all on self. So I read that to you intentionally so you can see, and and I'm a little bit crazy, I know, or maybe a lot crazy, but I'm I'm into stats. And so I started reading this, and after studying on it for several months now, it began to dawn on me just how much of the unholy trinity is in the first half of this particular psalm. You know what the unholy trinity is? It's me, myself, and I. The Holy Trinity is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the unholy Trinity is me, myself, and I. That's where we get into trouble. But, yes, it gets us into trouble, but God is also a realist. I mean, He's the most real being that's ever been. He's a realist. And He wants us to be realistic, too. So our problems are real. Things that we deal with, the troubles that we have, and the trials and the tribulations, they're real. They're not fake. And so as we see in this psalm, I think it's encouraging for us to know that we can deal with those things. It's a question of how we deal with them. The Matthew Henry commentary on this particular verse, it said, Days of trouble must be days of prayer. Days of inward trouble, especially when God seems to have withdrawn himself from us. We must seek him and seek him till we find him. Those are true words. And that's what we find here in the psalm. You say, well, he's focusing a lot on self, but he is seeking the Lord. And he does find a resolution as he seeks the Lord. Now, it would be interesting to point out here, 
This is a psalm of reflection. So the psalmist went through this and then he looked back and wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because it's, it's in the past tense. You know, he, he was this way. Now, it's believed that this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was one of the psalm writers in the days of David. So remember, all of the psalms are not written by David. This is Asaph, who was believed to be historically the chief singer or the chief psalm writer or hymn writer of that particular time when David was a king. And it's interesting that some of the commentators say that this language in the psalm is a foreshadow of captivity language. In other words, it's almost like God was putting the words in the mouth of Asaph about what was coming to the people of Israel when they would be led into captivity in Babylon. It's almost captivity language. But understand, make no mistake, that this that we have before us is true victim language. It's not just some feigned idea in the mind of the writer that they think they've been wronged, which is where we often find ourselves. You know, we think somebody has done us wrong and then we get into the details of, you know, maybe they just had a stomachache that day and that's why they didn't speak or something like that. You know, something rather minor when it comes to the scope of what we're going to look at. But I don't want you to think, well, since this is a true wrong, well, I just can't latch on to it. I want you to see that it applies to us, whether we got a feigned uh, victim mentality in our mind, whether we think we're a victim or we really are. Everything this side of that is what this psalm applies to. So don't think that it's just, oh, well, I can't reach it because this is a true victim. No, it's even a, a mentality of, well, I think I'm a victim and maybe I'm really not. But truly, this particular psalm has to do with someone who has been wronged. This is the language of a disconsolate, deserted soul walking in darkness, having no light, which is a very common case for children of God born of the Spirit. Feeling like you have no light, you have no way to get out of the situation that you're in, and you've truly been hurt. So let's consider some stats in the first half here. I read you the first half. Consider these statistics of the first half of Psalm 77. In verses 1 through 9, there are 20 references to self. I, my, mine, me. In the first half, there's 13 references to God. So if you're keeping score, it's 20 to 13. <laughs> Some of y'all think I'm crazy. No, I'm crazy. But Okay, I'll go ahead and give you these second half stats because the game's already over. In the second half, verse 10 through 20, there are six references to self. Me, myself, mine, so forth. And in the second half, there's 26 references to God. So if you tally that up, God wins 39 to 26. <laughs> now let's break down the first half stats, okay? I don't like how they stop the coaches as they're going into the locker room and interview them. I don't like that because it's distracting. You know, I know they're doing it for TV. I know they're probably paying them to do it. Who knows? But they used to not do that. You didn't get all these interviews and these sideline interviews and stuff. You know, you just watch the game. But, you know, they'll stop the coach at halftime as he goes in and they'll ask him some questions, both sides, you know. So these are some questions that we ask as the first half concludes, okay? Notice it says in verse 1, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. Notice the, the psalmic repetition there, like it's a psalm, it's a song. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice. That was easily sung by the, the psalmist, the writer. 
The word cried right there, I want you to listen to the definition so you can see what's going on. You can see that this person is a true victim. They have truly been wronged. Okay, cry means to shriek. It literally can mean, it doesn't have to mean a full-blown shriek, but it does mean someone shrieking or someone audibly crying out to God. So if you get the picture of the psalmist, he is there and he's audibly crying out to God. He's most likely alone in his prayer time and he's crying out to God. Now, this word cry occurs elsewhere in the Word of God. And I'm going to run through those real quick. Several of them, I think they're important because you, you have to get the understanding of what is going on in the mind and the heart of the psalmist so that we can identify with it. This word cry is the same word that God used to address Cain whenever he said, Thy brother Abel's blood cries out from the ground. It's a murder cry. Genesis 41 and 5 it speaks of the people of Egypt in the days of Joseph when the famine came. It says they were famished and they cried out to Joseph. They cried out for deliverance. It's a cry that relates to starvation. In Exodus 14 and 10, it's when the children of Israel, we spoke to you just a couple weeks ago about the children of Israel coming to the Red Sea. And they were in dire straits, were they not? Mountains on both sides, the beach and the sea in front of them and behind them comes Pharaoh's army. And it says they cried out. It's a desperation cry. If you want to bring it a little more close to home, 2 Kings chapter 5 speaks of the great Shunammite woman who had to leave her home for a period of time because of famine. The prophet had warned her to leave home. Well, while she was gone, people took over her land. They came in and just squatters just came in and took over her land. And so when she comes back after the famine, she goes to the king and she cries for her land back. She has truly been wronged. Y'all see the pattern here? This is a cry of those that have truly been wronged. See? Now I am going to read this to you in Job 19. I think we could find no greater or better victim than Job, could we? Who lost in the course of just a few days. He lost his ten children. He lost everything he had. He lost his health. And in Job 19 and 1, on top of all that, his, his three friends, so-called friends, who were described as miserable comforters, come and start pointing the finger at him. This is your fault, Job. This is your fault. And we know that it's not his fault. So Job answers and says, How long will ye vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times have ye reproached me. You are not ashamed that ye make yourself strange to me. And be it indeed that I have erred, Mine error remaineth with myself. He's saying, I'll grant you that maybe I have made a mistake, but it's between me and God. If indeed ye will magnify yourselves against me and plead against me my reproach, know now that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. Behold, I cry out of wrong, that's our word, but I am not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. Now you know Job had gone a little too far here, right? He was actually getting to the point where he's blaming God with what happened. But notice that's the cry of a victim. If you can't find, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you just can't find any greater victim than Job who was a victim of Satan's wiles. You see? Now, notice what the psalmist says. I cried unto God. That could be a cry where somebody has been murdered. It could be a cry where somebody's starving. It could be a cry where somebody is in absolute desperation because they're surrounded. It could be a cry like the, the great Shunammite woman. She lost her land wrongfully. And it could be something like Job. 
But I want you to understand that it's everything this side of that too, okay? Because you, you may sit there and say, well, you know, I've never had anybody murdered. I've never been a victim of a crime. I've never this, I've never that. He's covering everything. It covers the whole spectrum from one end, the least little nothing to the very end, the worst it can get. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. That's good, isn't it? Now, verse two, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. The word sought means to inquire or worship. Now, I want you to notice in the first verse, he says, I cried unto God. That is the general term for God. But in verse two, he gets a little more specific. I cried and sought the Lord. That is the word Adonai or master or owner. He says, I cried to my master. I cried to Adonai. And notice he says, my sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a point where you just felt like your prayers were not being heard? Or everything was coming at you in such a rapid succession, like a Gatling gun that just keeps firing, that you just don't even have time to recover from one until another one's coming along. I mean, think about Job. That happened to him, didn't it? By the time it says... Whenever that servant came and said, you just lost all of this. And then you just, the next servant, after that servant told that, the next one comes and you, then you lost this. And then you lost this. And then the last one comes and says, and now you've lost your children. I mean, you talk about being hit with gut punches one after the other after the other. Here is the psalmist who has been hit with gut punch after gut punch after gut punch. And he's crying out to Adonai and he can't get any relief. Have we not all been there at some point? If you haven't been there, you haven't lived long enough. Because that's life. Life is like that. Isn't it great to know that there is something or someone that can identify with the struggles of life? Notice he says that the result of crying out to God as a true victim, crying out for relief in the situation that he was in, he says, my sore ran in the night. And the John Gill commentary on this says this. The word my sore may be literally rendered as my hand. He said, well, I, that doesn't really make any sense. My sore, my, is his hand hurt? No, that's not what he's saying. The sense is that the hand was, was wet from wiping tears. Y'all get that? The hand was wet. He could not stop the tears from falling. So he had a hand that was wet from wiping tears. It can also mean that he had his hands extended to up to heaven to God. Now, if you ever walk in on me in my prayer closet or sneak in on me and look at me and you see me with my hands raised to God, you're going to know that I'm in some trouble, that I'm, I'm being victimized somehow or something's going on in my life because I can, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to do this in front of y'all. It looks kind of silly, but I have felt uncomfortable in my own personal prayer life. Just, I just don't feel worthy to raise my hands to God. Maybe some of you can instruct me better on that and say that it's okay. I, I get it. And the Word of God teaches it. But if you see me doing that, you're going to know that I have come to the end of the rope and maybe I've, I'm, I've fallen off the end of the rope. That's the indication that's given here. He's got his hands raised up to God. Lord, I have no place to turn but you. It also indicates that his hands are covered with his tears because he's constantly wiping his eyes. And the tears perhaps are running down to the ends of his fingers. Notice it says, my soul refused to be comforted. You know what that means? Some of you Bible readers, hope all of you Bible readers will remember another place where that occurs. Whenever Herod sent his men and killed and destroyed, murdered, 
the babies around Bethlehem. You remember that? That was a fulfillment. Now, what Herod did was not God directing him. Don't misunderstand that. But God's providence and his sovereignty is to know that that wicked king would do that. That's a big difference right there. God did not cause him to do it, but he saw that that wicked king would do it. And it's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah where it talks about Rachel weeping for her children and refused to be comforted because they were not, because they had been murdered. So understand that the type of anguish that this psalmist writing is in is loss of child level. Y'all hear me? It's loss of child level. I've never lost a child. Some of you may have. Well, I take that back. You know, we had a miscarriage. We lost a child in that form. But in terms of a... A, a grown child or a young child, that has got to be one of the most devastating losses that a parent could ever experience. And I remember when our children were small, toddlers and you know, small, all of them, and somebody would get sick. I mean, my mind would go to places that it shouldn't go. I'd think, oh, is that cough going to lead to pneumonia? Is that cough going to lead to you know, something that it will take their life? I, I just had that fear sometimes grip me of the worst case scenario. That's the way that we are. But this right here is the worst case scenario. This is loss of child level grief that he is experiencing. This was the greatness of his distress. He says, my soul refused to be comforted. I've encountered individuals who were like that in my life who had lost children and who had lost spouses. Their souls refused to be comforted. So if you know someone is in that condition, you shouldn't even try to comfort them because nothing you say will do any good if you know that's the situation. So you just pray for them and just be there for them. Maybe you hug them. Maybe you just walk with them. You know, there's just situations where you can't comfort someone. Only God can. That's what this psalm is about. Here's a guy that can't be comforted by anything that anybody has to say or, ha or will do. He can't even be comforted by his own thoughts. Notice it says, My sore ran in the night. I cried throughout the night. And my soul refused to be comforted. You say, well, it's going to get better, right? Verse 3, he says, I remembered God. You would think when he started remembering God, everything would kind of get better. But his distress was so great that when he remembered God, it says he was troubled. He was troubled. Now, let's back up here for just a second. I want to point out another statistic to you in the first half of this psalm. Notice in verse 2, it says, in the day of my trouble. In verse 3, it says, I remembered God and was troubled. And then it says on down... Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So he was troubled by what was going on in his life. He was troubled by when he thought about God. And he was troubled to the point that he was speechless. He could not speak. You ever been there? Mom used to tell us, if you can't say anything nice about somebody, just don't say anything at all. And this guy is to a point to where he can't say anything. It kind of reminds you of Psalm 73, where the psalmist could not speak because he was so troubled by the prosperity of the wicked. This is a different scenario. Here he's so troubled because of what he thinks about God and because of what's happened in his life, he can't speak. Listen, don't tell me that the Psalms don't have something for all of us, right? It doesn't matter what you're going through, how you're feeling, how you're afflicted, how you're in anguish. It doesn't matter what it is. You can find it in the Psalm. But you got to get in there and dig for it, see? He says, first of all, in the day of my trouble. And by the way, this is very important. Those three words for trouble are three different words. Three different words for trouble. So that's a lot of trouble. I've told y'all before, whatever you do, when you walk up to Brother Chris, don't ask him anything about the musical, the music man. Because he was the music man. Back in the 1980s, when we used to put on the little plays over here in Gordo, 
Chris was actually the music man one year, and he thinks that he was about as good as Hugh Jackman doing it. But anyway, don't mention anything to Chris about the music man because it's like his brain triggers, and all of a sudden he'll start singing, oh, you got trouble. You got trouble right here in River City. He'll just go on and on, and you, you can't, it's like a, something you can't, he ain't got a switch. You can't turn him off. But this is reminding me of that when I read this. Trouble, trouble, trouble. As a matter of fact, in one of those songs, they say, oh, you got trouble, trouble, trouble. It's like three times. You got three different kinds of trouble. That's a lot of trouble. The day of trouble, it means a tight spot. The visual that is given there, and don't, ladies, don't blame this on me. It's what the definition said. It said, for example, a female rival. That's the way that they describe that type of trouble. A female rival. When two females are jealous and rivaling against one another. And it made me think of the, the co-wives that you read about in the Word of God. Say, for example, like Penina and Hannah. who were Hannah, Penina was at Hannah's throat. A female co-wife. If you think jealousy and such as that among girls and young ladies and whatever is a bad thing. Just imagine what it would be like if there were co-wives. <laughs> There's no jealousy like that. But that's the kind of trouble. He's in a tight spot. It means anguish. It means affliction. It means Daniel the 12th chapter level of trouble. Daniel the 12th tra chapter speaks of the last days whenever the Lord would come back. They call it the time of Jacob's trouble. It said there will be trouble on the earth like there has never been since there was a time of the nations being formed. Like, like never before there would be a time of trouble before the Lord comes back. It's also what Jonah described in Jonah, the second chapter, where he says, in my affliction, my trouble, I cried out unto the Lord. Y'all remember where Jonah was? He was in the belly of the whale. So this is whale level trouble. See? Now he says, I remembered God and I was troubled. The word trouble right there means to make a loud sound or a hum, a great commotion, a moan or a roar. Another place in the word of God is the word disquieted. To not be able to get peace and quiet. I think I mentioned Wednesday night, I believe, or maybe it was last Sunday, about how even when you go to the gas station now to pump gas, you know, they got this music blaring at you. There's certain restaurants that I don't like to go to because they just have the music up too loud. I can't hear it to talk and interact with the people that I'm eating with. I hope y'all don't do that at home when you're sitting there eating around the kitchen table and carrying out your evangelism around the kitchen table. You know, turn the radio off. Turn. Is it Alexa? Is that what she's called? I'll tell you how old I am because I can't remember her name. But turn Alexa down so she doesn't interrupt what you're trying to do there. This is a commotion trouble where something is constantly moving. It carries the idea of a physical effect on the body. It physically affects the body. It also, if you want a visualization or of the hearing of this, it would be like the roaring of the sea. When I've read this, I think of, I have a ringing in my ears. The doctor tells me that it's because of, you know, shooting, it's in the left ear. And it tells me because it's from shooting the gun you know, the deer rifle and having your ear in that direction. So I have a constant ringing in my left ear. You know, I didn't realize I had a ringing in my left ear until, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. And I, and I started going, what's that? And the doctor told me what that was. And I'd lay there a few times at night and get a little disturbed over that because when I'd lay down, I could hear that ringing. And if I concentrated and focused on that ringing, it was just sort of, why can't I get this to shut off? So you can turn a fan on or something like that. You don't hear it as bad. It doesn't bother me a bit today, but it's there. A constant humming, a constant ringing. That's the kind of trouble that he was under. He couldn't get away from it. And then it says he was so troubled that he could not speak. The word trouble right there means angry and agitated. And the occurrence of that word trouble, it, it occurs in the Word of God only a few times. But without exception, the examples of where it occurs are where people lost sleep at night. 
Pharaoh lost sleep because he had a dream and he didn't know what it meant. And Joseph interpreted the dream. Nebuchadnezzar lost sleep. He was agitated. Have you ever had that happen? I've had dreams. You know, I might get, I might get eight hours of sleep, but I don't get any rest because I dreamed all night. Have y'all ever been there? I'll tell this funny one. Sometimes Sister Tracy would dream that I did something mean to her in her dream. And she'd wake up and be mad at me for two or three days. <laughs> and I'd tell her, honey, listen, it was a dream. I didn't really hurt you or be mad at you. I didn't really do anything. Yeah, but that dream was so real. <laughs> she said, that's not true. She was a little miffed at me just because of something I did in a dream. you know. But she got over it real quick, real quick. But have you ever had that where you, where you had a, just a disturbing dream? And you just, you just didn't get any rest. That's, that's what's going on here. He wakes up. He goes to sleep with it. He can't sleep with it. And even if he does nod off a little bit, he has these dreams to where it's disturbing him and he wakes up exhausted and tired and it's just compounding upon itself. Have y'all ever been there? Am I, am I, I hope I'm preaching to the choir about this because if you live life, you've been there in some way or another. So, first half statistics. Summary. Look what he does. He focuses on himself. I, me, my, mine. He complains. He questions and he accuses God in this first half of Psalm 77. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, he longs for the good old days. You ever heard people say that? Oh, I just wish the good old days were here. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. So if it was just the good old days, everything would be better. You know, Ecclesiastes speaks to that and he says to not to wish for the good old days. Number one, you can't time travel. You can't go back and find the good old days. I've got some good old days in my life. Look, here's the problem with going back, if you could. If you go back to the good old days, then you've got to live all the way through it again. It's kind of like Lazarus. You know, imagine Lazarus. You know, he dies and he's in heaven. I don't, don't ask me how all of that worked. I don't know if the Lord shielded him in a bubble so he didn't see what was there. I don't know if the Lord wiped his memory. But you can imagine that whenever he was woken back up from death, he's got to go through it all over again. Y'all have heard some stories I've told about Mr. Renzo Abrams. And he was a well-known older gentleman. At least he was older my entire life. <laughs> up in the Zion community. And he had some great sayings. He's the one that I told you about before that I remember the first person I remember praying was, was Mr. Renzo, who's prayed about, Lord, have mercy on such a worm as I. So Mr. Renzo has some great stories. So Mr. Renzo almost died several times in his life, in later life. And he'd get sick, he'd almost die, then he'd get well. And so somebody came to him one of those times after he'd almost died, and he got well. And they said, Mr. Renzo, we're so glad, so glad that you got well and you're doing better. And Mr. Renzo, he had this high-pitched voice. He talked like this. And he said, Lord, son, I'm not because i got to go through it all again. <laughs> got to go through it all over again. And eventually, one of those times he got sick, you know, he, he died. So you don't want to wish for the good old days because you can't go back. And if you did, you'd have to live through everything, the, tr the tough times again. And you might say, well, things were better at such and such point. I don't deny that. But the Lord is still on the throne. The Lord is still coming back. And no matter how bad the times get, that fact will not change. See, So the good old days are now. Because we're alive right now. That's why the Apostle Paul said over and over, now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day to serve God. And you see, the psalmist has forgotten that because he can't say that. He's saying, I wish for the, for the good old days. And also verse 6, he is drawing, trying to draw strength from non 
strength sources. Watch this. I call to remembrance my song in the night. You get that? I commune with mine own heart. That's the worst thing you could do when you're in this situation is look to your own heart for strength. What does the Jeremiah say? He says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It says the Lord knows the heart. You see, the worst place that you can look to is your own heart. Your heart is broken. Your heart is decimated. Your heart has been stomped flat, if you will. There's no, there's no strength in your heart. He's looking to non-strength sources, non-comforting sources. Listen, this is a situation where you should not drink away your sorrows. You should not laugh away your sorrows. You should not drug away your sorrows. You should not fornicate away your sorrows. You should pray it away. That's what he's doing right here. Pray it away. You know, the most miserable people on the planet are God's born-again children who don't understand that, who don't ever get past the first half of this where he's focused on self and he's worried about himself and he's only looking to self and he's looking for the good old days for strength and he's looking for non-places that won't comfort him and won't get him better. He's thinking, well, if I go back and I just do this or I do that, well, then, you know, like I used to do, well, then everything will be better. Go back to the old ways. No, the Lord's way is the way to go. And that's what you'll see here when we get to the second half. He communed. I mean, you think about how this is bad. He's, he, things are getting worse as he continues to go along. He can't even speak. And then he communes with his own heart. That's the worst thing he could do. But there's a little bit of hope given right here at the end of that verse 6 where he says, And my spirit made diligent search. So he's not quitting. A lot of people just quit on God. Listen, there are many, many glorious providences and deliverances in each of our lives that we do not see because we don't wait on God. You say, well, I just want this pain to be over. I want to take matters into my own hands. We all want to do that. But there are times that we can't wait on the deliverances of God. As like Brother Luke said a few weeks ago, he would have swam out into the Red Sea and just kind of paddled around for a while. If the children of Israel had done that, they would have all drowned and they would have never seen the Red Sea parted. You see that? We get impatient and we just don't wait. See, there's a time to wait. Now, there's a time to move too. There's a time to act, you know. And if you're in tune to the Holy Spirit and you're listening to God, you will move out and act whenever that time comes. But a lot of times we just need to wait. We don't need to go back to what we used to do. We don't need to go back to what we used to say. See, he's accusing God. He's communing with his own heart. But... He did make diligent search. And then at the close of the first half, he asked six very tough questions. This is where all of his musings and meditations lead him to. Six very tough questions that I believe in some way or another, we've all asked them. Will the Lord cast off forever? It means, will he push me aside? He felt like the Lord was pushing him aside, which was not true, right? Will he be favorable no more? Favorable indicates a satisfaction of debts. Will he satisfy my debts no longer? Is his mercy clean gone forever? It means, has his mercy been brought to nothing? Does the mercy of God mean nothing? Doth his promise fail forevermore? His promises are his word. Y'all understand that? His word. Has God's word come to an end in my life where it doesn't have any application? Verse 9. Hath God forgotten to be gracious? This is us saying, is God oblivious to my circumstance? We've all said that, haven't we? And then 
perhaps the most devastating question is the last one because this is a different type of mercy than the one that's listed in verse 8. Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? The definition of tender mercies right there is the picture of a mother cherishing a child in the womb. Don't ever forget that. It's not a mother holding her child in her arms like these two beautiful babies that have recently gone home. It is a picture of a mother who is tethered to her child in the womb. Do y'all get that? The cord is still connected. The tether is connected to the mother. That's tender mercies. He's saying, Lord, have you severed the tether, the connection that you have with me? Have you ever been there? I've been there more times than I care to recount. I'll say this just on a personal testimony. Most of the times when I get there, it's because of my sin and what I've done. But there have been occasions whenever things are coming at you so hard and so fast that you just feel like the Lord severed his tether from me. I'm the only one going through this. I don't know how to handle it. Well, I want you to notice what he says right there. Have he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. The word selah, that's like an exclamation where he says, wait, hold it. Think about what you're saying. It means to pause. Aren't you glad that he paused right there? And by the way, that's the end of the first half. That's how the first half closes. And as I told you, you know, me, myself, and I is way ahead of the Lord. Me, myself, and I is way ahead of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at this point. But at least there's a pause. At least there's a step back and think about what you're saying. Step back and think about it. You see, he's so off base. And it's understandable. Look, I'm not condemning and condemning him and putting him down. We all get off base. We all get our thinking messed up. I've told you many times, I'm not worried about your soul. Jesus has your soul. Jesus has saved your soul. I just want to save your mind. A mind is incredible when it comes to how it works and how we think. And I want to save your mind with the Word of God. I want you to know that His promises are sure. It doesn't matter how you feel or how low you think you've gone or how far you've gone away from God. I want you to know that His mercies are not clean gone forever. That's the truth of the Word of God. And the psalmist learns that in the second half. The second half is verses 10 through 20. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis as we read this because we've got to read the whole second half and then we'll make a few comments and we'll be done for the day. Here's the second half. After he asks those six questions and he says, Selah, pause. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Do you notice the difference? Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Another place. Maybe that's between the third and fourth quarter. Another place to pause. The waters saw thee, O God. The waters saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lightened the world the earth trembled and shook thy way is in the sea and thy path in the great waters and thy footsteps are not known thou lettest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron 
Now, that's a different second half right there. That is a blowout victory for the Lord himself, you see? Very little is said about me, myself, and I in the second half. Aren't you glad that the psalmist didn't end his psalm right there at the end of verse 9 and just said, Selah, it's over with for me. I don't have any hope. I don't have any place to look. Selah, uh, checking out, game over. No, he pressed on. He kept seeking God until he found God because sometimes the circumstances of life will shut off our thinking from God. You see that? It'll happen to you again and again. And you think God's oblivious to my circumstance. God's oblivious to what I'm going through. And yet we find in this beautiful example that if we'll just keep pressing on, just keep following the pattern of what God says works. Next thing you know, I'll be going from being speechless to talking about the things of God. Proverbs 16 and 3 is one of my favorite to-do verses. Proverbs 16 and 3 says, Commit thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established. I've used that again and again and again throughout the years. As a matter of fact, uh, that's, that is the first thing that I normally use when somebody is struggling and they can't see. They can't see where to go. They can't see what to do. They think the Lord has forsaken them. Commit thy works to the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established. Now there's a lot of things that you can't do in this life and commit them to the Lord. You understand? You can't rob a bank. You can't fornicate. You can't lie. You can't do this, that, and the other. That's against the will of God. You can't commit those things to God. So what can you commit? to God? What work can you commit to Him? You can commit your prayer life to Him. You can commit your study life to Him. You can commit your work life to Him as you go to the workplace and speak kindness to one another and be kind to those that are around you. Even if you don't get along with them, you can, you can commit that to the Lord, you see? You can't commit anger and, and malice and getting back at somebody. You can't commit that to the Lord. There's only certain things you can commit to the Lord. You know what? Standing at the top of that flagpole, so to speak. You can commit going to church to the Lord. You see that? Because that's what it's all about, is going to church to honor God. So well, I just really don't feel like I'm in such a low spot. I get that. And believe it or not, people think, well, preachers, are just, they're just a cut above. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're a cut below. I didn't ask to be called to preach the gospel. I'm more than happy to do it, and I love to do it. But I'm a sinner just like anybody else. It's not a cut above. It's a cut below. And there's been times in my life when I said, I just don't think there's any point in going. I don't have anything to say. I don't have anything to preach. I've studied all week and there's just really nothing there. It's dry. It's dead. It's like mining. You know, and you mine and you mine and you mine. And you don't find a jewel. You don't find any gold. You don't find any silver. I spent weeks of my life in that way. But you know what I come back to? I come back to Proverbs 16 and 3. Commit thy works to the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established. There's been times when my foot has stepped into this pulpit and the Lord has given me something to preach about. And then there's been times whenever I got through preaching, I'd be like, I wish I'd have said that and wait all next week to say it. Don't think for a second that the preacher's some kind of cut above. He's a cut below. He didn't ask to be called. He didn't sign up for it. It's not a job opportunity, you see? It's a calling from God. Somebody asked Sister Tracy one time, well, I didn't know you married a preacher. And she said, I didn't. She said, I didn't marry a preacher. You know, I married a songwriter, singer, some fool, you know, that was chasing dreams like a crazy man. Sister Tracy didn't marry a preacher. God called me, and I understood that call after we were married. I'll never forget the day that I shared with Sister Tracy that I thought I was called to preach. I finally figured that out. We were walking in a little park there in Nashville in the area that we lived in. We were just walking along holding hands. You know, the birds were chirping, and the, it was springtime, and everything was just wonderful and glorious. We are living in Nashville. I was chasing my foolish dream where I thought I was called to sing and write songs. 
And we're just walking along, everything's fine. I said, hey, what do you think if I told you, I think I might be called to preach? Dead silence. (laughs) I know what she's thinking. I'm not putting words in her mouth, but I knew she was thinking, I already knew I married somebody crazy. It's already obvious he's a nut. But now he's a full-blown nut. He's lost his mind now. I mean, that's such to the other direction of where we were and what we were doing. If y'all ever pray for me, y'all need to pray twice as much for Sister Tracy. (laughs) She didn't marry a preacher. And there's been times when I didn't know what I was going to say when I got in this pulpit. I just have to say, Lord, this isn't about me. You know, that's how it comes out. Lord, this isn't about me. This isn't about what I got. It's about you and your storehouses are full. Lord, just let some manna fall down here and let's just share it and break bread with the people of God. You see? Now, I don't like those weeks that go like that. I like it where the Lord lays something on my heart when I step out of the pulpit and I can study on that for the rest of the week, say, this is what God's leading me to do. But that just doesn't work that way all the time. Sometimes it feels like He has shut up His tender mercies. It feels that way. But let me tell you, child of grace, the Lord will never sever that tether with you because you're a blood-bought child of God. It's not because you're so good and so grand. It's because His Son is so good and so grand. He'll never sever that tether with you as His child. Isn't that glorious? Second half, verses 10 through 20, He starts off with confession. Y'all see that? He confesses. In the confession, He says, this is my infirmity. Notice that, verse 10. I said, this is my infirmity. It's always good to start off with confession. You say, well, I don't know that I've really done anything wrong. Well, that was a wrong thought right there, so just confess that, you see? It's just, we're permeated with sin. Your sin nature doesn't leave you when God touches your heart. You're permeated with sin. Our thoughts are sin. Our actions are sin. Even whenever we seek to do good, it's tainted with some form of sin. Y'all may have heard Brother Chris tell the story of there was this guy when he was... 20 years old, 18 years old, he was out with a bunch of his friends and there was a homeless guy out there and he was, you know, asking for money and so forth. So nobody really paid any attention to him. And Brother Chris and his nobility, you know, he went up to him and, man, he didn't just give him a one or a two or a five. This This is back in the 80s, by the way, when a $20 bill was worth a lot more. But he gave him a 20. He said, I was thinking to myself, what a great guy I am. That's what he says. That's exactly how he tells it. What a great guy. I'm so noble. I'm so good. You know, he did a great thing. It is, but it's tainted with our own selfish desires and sins and wanting to be not. I've done the same thing many times. This is my infirmity. I confess my sin. And I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now, it's interesting what he calls God right there. He calls him the Most High. That means the Supreme One. If you'll find that occurrence throughout the Word of God, it is the Supreme One. There is no one higher than God. He says, I remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'll start by thinking about when God touched me with His grace or when God brought me to the revelation of the truth of His grace. You see? I'll start right there. And he says, I will remember the works of the Lord. I'll start with the Most High, the years of the Most High. I'll remember the works of the Lord. And I will remember the wonders of the Lord. You see, this man has gone from worry and now he's going to wonder. You know what wonder is? The first time that my parents in the 1970s took us to Disney World. That's a different ball game today. But back in the days when it was all oriented towards family. And I'll never forget walking down Main Street, Disney World. My parents leading us, the little fellows, Chris and myself, by the hand. And I, we were just in wonder. What is this place? Have we died and gone to heaven? <laughs> 
There's lollipops everywhere. There's balloons everywhere. There's people smiling everywhere. There's rides to ride. I mean, it was just, this didn't look like Zion. It was overwhelming. It was a wonder. Now, I just don't want to limit that wonder to Disney World. You know, they say Disney World is the happiest place on earth. Well, I beg to differ. There's a happier place. It's called the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you lost your wonder towards the church? You know, I've been to the Grand Canyon. When we went to the Grand Canyon, the first time with the kids, I made them get out in front of me. I know I wasn't going to push them off. But I made them get out in front of me, walk in front of me, and I was walking. My, I'd been there before. And I had my camera. And, you know, as you walk up to the Grand Canyon, you know, it's a walkway. And you say, well, what's the big deal? You know, I, mean, I don't see anything. And then when you come around the curb or you come around the walkway, and all of a sudden, kaboom, is this, as Mr. Oliver Junkin used, used to say, there's this great big gully. There's this great big gully. There's this great big canyon there. I had the camera going. Because when the kids, they were like, you know, where is it? What's going on? And they were like, whoa. It was wonder on their faces. Let me ask you, have you lost your wonder? That's a bad thing to lose. The psalmist, he has gone back to the wonder of a child. Do you get that? He has been engaged in the messy anguish of life. And he just can't wrap his mind around it. He can't see God. He can't even speak whenever he's got his eyes on all of that stuff that's coming at him. But he comes back to the true God. He comes back to the supreme, the most high, the work of God, and the wonder of God. Wonder means miracle. I tell you, child of grace, you say, well, I've never seen a miracle of God. Well, then you had not looked in the mirror lately. Because your spiritual life is a miracle of God. Why would He save you? Why would He save me when we are sinners? We should pay for our own sins in the lake of fire, but by the grace of God, it's a miracle. It's a wonder of God. I look at myself and I think, what a wonder it is that He would save me. Have you done that lately? He says, I will meditate of His wonders. This is child-level loss type pain. This is whale-level trouble. This is criminal victim-level trouble. This is a true victim. What brought Him back? His memory... His memory. He went from worry to wonder. He went from a pity party to praise. He went from speechless to speaking. He went from woe is me to worthy is He. You see that? Elohim, Adonai, Jehovah, the Supreme One. Will He push me aside? Never. (laughs) Will He always satisfy my debts? Yes, He did on the cross and then forever put away. Is His mercy brought to nothing in my life? No, it's not. It will never be brought to nothing. Are His promises ended? Does His Word fail to me? Absolutely not. That was the conclusion of the psalmist in the second half. Has He forgotten about me? Is He oblivious to my circumstance? Absolutely not. Has He severed the connection with me and Him? No more than a true godly mother would sever the connection, the tether that she has with that child in the womb. God will never sever His connection with you. Now, I've been studying on Psalm 77 for a while. And I don't even think I studied it out. Because it's so beautiful and so applicable. But I've enjoyed studying it. And I have to say, I've enjoyed preaching it to you here today. And I hope and pray that like a child, you'll go back to the wonder of God. You'll go back to the wonder of His church. You'll go back to the wonder of who He is and never get caught and stuck like many of God's children do in that first half. Let the second half play out and God will win every time.